Good morning, everybody. If you are in the fourth or fifth grade, you are dismissed to your class, fourth and fifth graders. Feel free to go on to your class. The rest of us are going to be in Matthew chapter 5, so if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 5 will be there in just a moment. Before I actually begin the lesson, I need to start by making a confession to the reality that sometimes there is a gap between what I know to be theologically right but what I feel in my heart and in my spirit. Sometimes I find there's a distance, meaning I know what the Bible says, I know what Jesus says, it's not, it's not gray to me, it's not unclear, it's not ambiguous. I know what he says, I know what he means, and I know that is right, but sometimes in my heart and in my spirit, I just don't feel it. And that's where I'm at this morning in regards to a hard teaching of Jesus. I firmly believe what I'm about to say is truth, but I'm still growing and maturing in my initial responses to the things that come from my heart and head. For example, I believe that the ways of Jesus are nonviolent, always and without exception. But do you know what my favorite moment is in any sporting event? It's a fight. The moment a fight breaks out, I get so excited, I am glued to the TV, the adrenaline goes up. It's my favorite moment, and I don't even care what sport it is. You can get two female pole vaulters, and they start beating the snot out of each other. It is my favorite moment in the track and field event. You know what my favorite sport to watch is with the family? Like, I mean, my entire family, including my little nine-year-old little girl, our favorite sport is mixed martial arts. We love to get together and watch that, and it's not a good fight until somebody gets bloody. That is our favorite thing. In terms of uh, my political and theological convictions, I am pro-life, and not just pro-life in regards to the issue of abortion, but I mean across the board with issues of war, capital punishment, euthanasia. But when I hear about Osama bin Laden being taken out by our military, i got to be honest with you, I get pretty excited inside, and I just want to celebrate that. I think, yeah, we got him. Or when I see a man who's hurt, abused, or killed little children be sent to the executioner, i just got to be honest, there's parts of my heart that are glad and relieved, and I have moments where I think, I'll flip the switch myself on that dude. Kelly tells me often I'm not a very good pacifist, and she's probably right. I'm a better one in theory. And so if you were to ask me, if somebody were to break into my home and threaten to, to hurt my little girl, what would you do? My answer would be, well, I'm going to try to kill him. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's where I'm at. So for me, I recognize I've got gaps in what is, for me, theological convictions and what's in my heart and my mind. And yet I'm still trying to move forward as a disciple of Jesus, trying all the more to adopt his thoughts and his ways and his heart in all matters. And so this is where we are with Jesus' teachings this morning. And so I want to read. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. And when we get done here, it'll be real clear. I don't think you'll be confused at all. Jesus is very clear. And so here we go, verse 38 in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this is Jesus quoting from the Old Testament. This is the retaliation laws that are in effect, meaning that if I knock out somebody's tooth, then they get to knock out my tooth. If I somehow blind somebody in the eye, you know what they get to do to my eye? They get to take it out. That's the retaliation laws, and that's in Jesus' day, that's what... Now, in its original context, it was meant to be protective in nature. So you know this to be true in terms of human nature. If somebody slaps you, what do you want to do? No, you don't want to slap them. You want to knock their head off. That's what you want to do. That's the way human nature is. You slap me, I'm going to take your head right off of your body. That's what, and so the retaliation laws were intended to say, oh, no, no, it's got to be in kind. So if you miss a tooth, you lose a tooth. If you, if you hit somebody in the eye, you get hit. It's supposed to be retaliation that way. But Jesus comes along then and he says this, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Go give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Is there anything in there that's not clear to you? Does that make sense what Jesus says? And so you know that bum of a brother that hasn't been working for years and wants to bum more money off of you? I mean, I mean Jesus is talking right now. We've got to figure out, oh, man, what does he mean by this? And then he goes on to say, verse 43, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we've got three options with this text, what to do with it. One is to spiritualize it, to say, oh, Jesus is setting the bar so high, he clearly can't mean for us to literally turn the other cheek, to literally not resist an evil person. So he must mean that spiritually. So we want to spiritualize it, and somehow maybe it's some in our heart, somehow we're supposed to think this or whatever, but not to take it literally. The second way is just to dismiss it outright, to say something like, bless Jesus' heart, but this just really isn't practical. I mean, Jesus, ultimately, it's irrelevant because you can't really live like this because of this situation or that situation or this illustration or this going on in my life. You can't really expect me to go two miles after being forced to go one mile. That's just not, it's not realistic. And so Jesus was Jesus. He was the Son of God and blah, 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 but I'm not. And that's why he died on the cross so I can go ahead and not follow what he's saying here. Or number three, that we take it seriously, that we actually believe, no, what Jesus is saying here, he intended for us too. Like, it wasn't just about his life. It's about anyone who wants to confess him his Lord and Master and follow after him as a disciple. He is saying, no, this is how the new order of things are going to be. We're going to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We're going to turn the other cheek, and we're going to give our cloak as well, and we're going to go a second mile, that we're to take that literally and figure out how do we apply that and all of its ramifications in our life. And so, where it becomes really, the rubber hits the, hits the rubber. I mean, if one of your kids comes home from school, maybe this happened to you, and they're being bullied all the time, just, just day in and day out, they're just getting picked on and bullied. If they were to come to you for advice, what would you say to them? Would you say, well, son, when you get to school tomorrow, do not resist an evil person? I mean, would you say, now, when they hit you on this side of your face, I want you to turn the other side and let them hit that side uh, on the other side as well. Is that what we would say? And in a moment, you get to see, this is a very hard teaching. I'm more into not saying it's right, but, hey, don't start it, but if it comes to you, make sure you punch them in the nose as hard as you can so that it hurts so bad, even if you ultimately lose this fight, they will think twice before doing it again. And then I would sit down with my son, and we would listen to Kenny Rogers' song, Coward of the County, together. And any Kenny Rogers fans, anyone? Does anyone know what song I'm talking about? See, it's, it's funny, just age differences. I'm sure I'm dating myself. And I'm not saying you're old if you know this song. I don't hear me say that. I'm just... We'd sit down and listen. If you don't know the song, it's a song about a boy named Tommy. When he's 10 years old, his dad goes off to prison. And right before his dad goes off to prison, he tells his son the following. And this is the chorus of the song. He says, promise me, son, not to do the things I've done. Walk away from trouble if you can. All right? Now it won't mean you're weak if you turn the other cheek. I hope you're old enough to understand. You don't have to fight to be a man. That's the, that's the chorus, and you're welcome. Um, so, yeah, thank you. So, uh, so all of his life, Tommy backs down from a fight, and so everyone in the community calls him yellow. 
And one day the three Gatlin boys attack the woman he loves. Her name is Becky. And so Tommy walks in the room and he sees Becky and she's crying and her dress is torn and she's clearly been beaten. And it looks like he's headed for the door in the bar. And what the song song goes on to say, what he does is he locks the bar and he turns around and then he unleashes 20 years of pent-up frustration and rage on the three Gatlin boys. And it ends then, the song ends with this final refrain. I promise you, Dad, not to do, I promised you, Dad, not to do the things you've done. I've walked away from trouble when I can. Now, please don't think I'm weak. I didn't turn the other cheek. And, Papa, I sure hope you understand. Sometimes you got to fight when you're a man. And then me and my son would wipe away manly tears from our eyes, and we'd go take care of what needs to be taken care of. But in this song, it speaks a language that I think every man, and maybe even woman, feels and understands. And it stands, though, in contrast to Jesus' teachings. And I've got, it calls us to have to figure out why there's that divergence. Why would Jesus tell us to turn the other cheek? Why would he tell us to give your cloak as well? Why would he tell us to walk an extra mile? Why would he tell us to love our enemies? Further, why is violent retaliation always our initial and gut reaction to everything? And I'm telling you, it usually is. If you just read, read the newspapers, watch the news, what you will find out on very personal levels all the way up to international levels, it seems that violent retaliation is all that we know. It is our initial response and gut reaction to everything. And I'm sure if you're a teacher in the school schools, I bet you see this all the time. And so in that, people, I mean, at Riley High School, there used to be, it might be still, a program called Take 10. And we had some adults here at Livingstone's Church that went to Riley. And it's intended to help kids see that you don't have to resort to violence to resolve every conflict that comes into your life. There are other ways, other, other ideas in which to handle conflict as it shows up. Because what we're used to living in is, well, they disrespected me, so I had to shoot them. And, and you could define disrespect all you want, but that seems to be the language of, well, I've been disrespected, and so people get shot, and now they're going to spend the rest of their life in prison over it. And violence is just that quick on a personal level, on a local level, on a national level, on an international level. Just read the newspapers, and there you'll see it. But that's always been the case. I mean, not just today, but even in Jesus' day. I mean, Jesus is very much aware of the normalization of violence. He lived in the Roman Empire. What that means is he saw, I mean, forget about mixed martial arts. I mean, nothing compared to what you see in the local royal Roman Colosseum. And Jesus lived in a day and age where you really did take the law into your own hands, and he has these retaliation laws of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which if you ever watch Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye goes on to say, great, now the whole world's going to be toothless and blind. So what is Jesus's, why would he call us to this? And I want to say this out loud. I, I do not think Jesus' main intent in this teaching is to make you a nicer person. Because I think somehow that's where this gets kind of, it gets in that kind of that, men especially, especially men. And I'm not mean to leave out the ladies, but I want to say this loud and clear. Jesus' main goal in your life is not to make you a nice guy. It's just not. Jesus' ultimate goal for you, ultimate aim, ultimate intent for your life is not for you to just become some nice guy. Because I believe that the most common cultural expression of Christianity and the teachings of Jesus and church is somehow that you're supposed to become, in the end, a nice guy. And so I see wives will sometimes bring their husbands hoping they end up being a, a nicer guy. And however they want to define that, mean, meaning, I don't know, stop cussing, stop drinking, stop smoking, talk, or, talk in a calmer tone, be a little bit more patient with the kids, more affectionate with them as wives. I don't know what you mean by it. And maybe becoming a disciple of Jesus might actually do some of those things, but Jesus' ultimate aim is not to make you a nice guy. His goal 
is to make you a dangerous guy that so disrupts the natural order of things, socially, politically, and economically, that you are nothing less than a revolutionary by whom a new order of things breaks into the face of the earth. Now, let me repeat that because you might have missed that, but this is what I think Jesus' ultimate aim is for you. It's not to make you into a nice guy. It's to make you into a dangerous guy that so disrupts the natural order of things, socially, politically, economically, that you are nothing less than a revolutionary by whom a new order of things breaks into the earth. And you know when I say that out loud, you know who that sounds like to me? That's Jesus. He was that radical revolutionary who so disrupted the natural order of things, socially, politically, and economically, that it brought a whole new order of things on the face of the earth. Jesus was not crucified because he was a nice guy, right? He did not go to the cross because he liked to kiss babies and hug old ladies. That's not why they killed Jesus. They killed Jesus in the end because he scared the hell out of the powers that be, whether they be Jewish or Roman or religious or economic or political or social, And that's what he wants from you. So men and women, I'm sorry if a preacher or a church or your spouse or your mother or your great great aunt Ruth dumbed down Christianity to simply being a nice guy with a set of moralistic rules for you to follow. And so what we have to decide is, here in this teaching on non-retaliation, if this is inherent to a new order, that maybe Jesus wasn't saying, don't retaliate evil for evil because then you won't be a nice guy. But maybe he was saying don't retaliate evil for evil because it keeps you trapped in an order and a system that is doomed and cannot work. That the only thing that works is a revolutionary response that no one knows what to do with. That when it happens, it's so unsettling, it's so shocking, it's so revolutionary. And sometimes that means for us to creatively, imaginatively think through how do we respond to evil in the manner of Jesus and have that already figured out? And we just, most time, violence is so instinctive to our responses, we just don't even take the time. I remember my mom was telling me, she's a sixth grade teacher at Lavelle Elementary, and she was talking to me about a story that happened on the playground. A boy was getting picked on by his classmates, and they were, you know, pushing around and, and picking on him. And he was on the tire swing, and he didn't know how to respond. So in the middle of being just kind of harassed, he just started singing a church song as loud as he could. And they didn't know what to do with it, and so they all walked away. What are you going to do with the kid who's just singing aloud? Jesus loves me. I mean, you didn't know what to do. I was like, and so maybe it's to think creatively, imaginatively, of that the only thing that works is that revolutionary response. Maybe Jesus knows on a personal level, all the way up to an international level, that returning evil for evil has not been successful at anything. It hasn't really changed anything. It just continues to perpetuate an order which people with power, strength, and coercion win, and everyone else loses. It's who has the biggest army and the best bombs. Maybe Jesus knows that our immersion in the old order is so ingrained in our thoughts and reactions that we have failed to have any imaginative exercise on other responses to evil. Maybe Jesus knew that if we were to actually take seriously this teaching and live it out, we wouldn't be the weakest, but rather the strongest and we could actually bring about revolution and change the old order of things. And to illustrate that, perhaps one of the best examples is found in a Hindu named Mahatma Gandhi. Now, I don't know if you know the story of Gandhi. It's interesting. He was heavily influenced by the teachings of Jesus. He was not a Christian. He was a Hindu. And he struggled with that all of his life because he was attracted to Jesus. He was not attracted to his disciples. And so he famously said one time, I like your Christ. I don't care for your Christians, just based on how he was treated by Christians in South Africa when he was there in his education and also those who claimed to be Christians from the British Empire. But Gandhi, being influenced by the teachings of Jesus, 
was, in fact, uh, he knew that non he understood Matthew chapter 5. He read it. He knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. It wasn't overly spiritual. It wasn't like something to dismiss. He knew this was a revolutionary thing on the face of the earth. So he committed himself to nonviolence in terms of how to respond to evil. Until he applied these principles on March 12, 1930, on what is called the Dandi March. At the time, the British Empire had a monopoly on salt, which was essential for people to live, uh, to live in the day, and they had heavy taxation. So if you lived in India, even though the salt was yours in India, they had heavy taxation on it. And so what Gandhi did is to protest, he did a march all the way out to the sea and made his own salt in defiance of the British Empire. But he, in this march, decided to come up with what would be nonviolent means to overcome true injustice, social, political, and economic. And so, I don't know if you've ever seen, you ever see the 1982 movie Gandhi? You ever see that Ben Kingsley is the... I want to show you a clip that illustrates what happens in this uh, Gandhi march and what takes place in terms of how evil is overcome by nonviolence and non-retaliation. And I want to talk about whether this looks strong or weak or just our thoughts in it. Now, I do need to warn you, there is violence in it. So if you're extra sensitive to violence or whatever, then get out your cell phone and check Facebook or whatever you want to do. But for the rest of you, uh, I want you to see this clip from the movie Gandhi. And regular staff only through these gates. Very well. We will receive them in his name and for his sake. We will not raise a hand. Long live Mahatma Gandhi! Long live Mahatma Gandhi! Long live! Long live! We are ready! I want force and discipline. at midnight they took Gandhiji from us they expect us to lose heart or to fight back we will do neither Gate is closed. 
you, but when I see this, I see strength. I don't see weakness. I don't see being passive. I don't, what you see over and over again is people who resolve not to retaliate evil for evil. And so what happens historically is it goes on, and this Martin Sheen's character plays the part of reporters, but the story gets out across the world, and it changes public opinion, and it turns the tide, and ultimately leads to Indian independence from the British Empire. Because what happens is it so exaggerates the injustice, it so highlights the injustice that it changes people's hearts because evil against evil will never change hearts. Love is the only thing that can change hearts. And ultimately, it's not just about getting your oppressor to stop oppressing you. It's you want their heart to be changed as well. And retaliating an evil will never accomplish that. And that's what Jesus knows. What he's for is the change of hearts. And so what you see over and over again is this is why I think Jesus intended his teaching is not to make you passive or to be a nice guy. I think the intent of Jesus' teaching is that when you turn the other cheek, it so highlights the injustice of the situation that it changes the hearts of all those who see it and even at times participate in it. The reason why he tells us to give our cloak when we're being sued for our tunic is because it so highlights the injustice of the situation that it changes the hearts of those who witness it and are a part of it. The reason why he says don't just stop at one mile, go two, is because it highlights and it becomes a revolutionary act, a radical act that says I will not respond evil for evil. There is another way that gets us out of the old order of things. And that's why I think in the end Jesus calls us to what is radical in the sense of, yes, now we will love our enemies and pray for people who persecute us because who in the world does that? Those who follow Jesus are supposed to do that. And my guess is, that in this, what we'll see is 
a revolutionary force of love that overcomes evil because love is the only force that can triumph over evil. And Jesus calls us to that revolutionary force, knowing that in the end, love wins, which somebody should write a book with that title in it. It goes back to 50 years ago. There's another man we celebrate often who was also a Christian and influenced by Jesus' teachings. And it wasn't so that you were weak or that you did nothing or that you were passive. And what we find is in his nonviolence, what we saw is revolutionary power that changed systems in the order of the world. And so Martin Luther King Jr. is for us another illustration of refusing to retaliate evil for evil And in so doing, it highlights the injustice of segregation and bigotry and initiates a change in our society. And I know I personally still have a long way to go to grow into this. And I've got a lot to mature in this. But I'm convinced Jesus' ultimate intent is he's inviting us to participate, a spark of revolution on the face of the earth that brings a new order of things, a new order that we call the kingdom of God. It's the reign and rule of God. It's what he wants to happen happens, and that order is established on love, not violence or coercion or force. And that's why I believe that Jesus' teachings are so important. Otherwise, we continue to participate in the old order of things that we already know is doomed and passing away, an old order of things that does not have the power to bring about true change. Radical revolutionary love is our calling. And I know you're probably thinking, yeah, but isn't that kind of costly? I mean, risky, could involve suffering and pain. Uh, the answer is yes. Yes, it can maybe even death. But I need to remind you, you know you're following a crucified Messiah, right? I mean, we are not greater than our master. He was a sacrificial servant of love, and that is how he changed the world, and he calls us into his same life. What that means for us is our hope is not in a political party. Our hope is not in a president or a political or social movement or a booming economy or the right right legislation. Our hope is in a crucified Messiah who embodied love and by it conquered evil. And so Jesus is quite clear. It doesn't seem to me a lot of gray area, little ambiguity in terms of his delivery. For us, love will conquer hate, and good will overcome evil, and blessing will be more powerful than cursing, and sacrificial love will destroy injustice. And it might mean we have to live in that in faith, trusting that in the end God sees all and will make everything right. But for us, it means this afternoon, we go through the hard task of trying to figure out all the ways that we're living in an eye-for-an-eye and tooth-for-a-tooth context. And sometimes there's subtle things of retaliation where you do this to me and I'm going to get you back like this. And so things that get on the list like your wife hurts your feelings in this particular way, so to get her back, you're going to hurt her feelings like this. It's an eye-for-an-eye and a tooth-for-a-tooth. It's responding evil with evil. Or you might say to yourself, well, my kids don't call me enough and they don't come over and visit and you feel ignored and neglected by them, so this year I'm not going to send them a birthday card. It's just it's an eye-for-an-eye and a tooth-for-a-tooth. Or... You didn't get invited to that party, and all your friends got invited, but you got left out, and your feelings were hurt, so you know what you do next weekend? You throw an even bigger party, inviting more people, and, leave it, and, and invite everybody except for the person who left you out the weekend before. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Or my ex-wife won't let me see the kids, and so I'm not going to cooperate with my child support. And so it's, an, it's a retaliation, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Or maybe you feel overlooked at work. The boss has overlooked you for a promotion, and so I'm not going to put much effort anymore into the work. So eye for an eye. Or maybe, especially in the fall, maybe your neighbors threw their leaves back in your yard, so you're going to let your dog crap in there. See, I mean, that's, just, that's, how, that's how eye for an eye, tooth for tooth works. And this is true also on an international level as well. I saw a bumper sticker once on a car. It said, 
I think when Jesus said, love your enemies, he probably meant don't kill them. <laughs> so, yeah, that's probably right. But let me close with this. Um, this is a miraculous way of life, and I don't want to suggest otherwise. I mean, to really live out what Jesus is saying here is going to take supernatural empowerment. What that means is it won't be natural. There will not be like Sam, me, Sam. I mean, I know who I am, and I know my thoughts and my response. In order to actually live out what Jesus is teaching here, it will require supernatural empowerment. It will truly be miraculous. And in that, I think that's why God has given us his Holy Spirit that dwells within us. It wasn't because the Spirit was homeless and needed a place to stay. It's so that it could empower us to live out the teachings of Jesus, even when they're difficult, to empower us to live a supernatural life, a miraculous life, because it's the only life that has the power to change the world. And in that, we've been called. So in that, may God give you grace to think through, how in my life do I get to apply this hard, and I confess, this hard teaching of Jesus to not be retaliating evil for evil, but to overcome evil with love. So let's pray together. Father, we come to you and thank you that you are God who didn't come and smite us, but you showed us grace and mercy and love and forgiveness, and now we're calling us to be a people of grace, mercy, kindness, and love. And so we need your help, God, because we have initial responses and reactions and thoughts that come into our heart and mind, and there are situations that we each walk in that are difficult for us, and we want to respond in a particular way, and we need your Spirit to empower us to respond in the manner of your Son, Jesus. And so we're not confused this morning. We know what he said. What we need is empowerment to know how to live this out. And so I pray, Father, for wisdom in that, that you teach us how to walk in this, that you might be glorified and that your kingdom might come, and it might be here more fully on earth just like it is in heaven. That's our prayer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and sing.